we're working through our, our morning teaching series when you can't run away from your most troubling thoughts. And last Sunday night I recommended different books uh, in keeping with the Sunday night teaching. I don't always or often perhaps do that in the morning. Doubts caused by a lack of commitment. And, and let me just recommend... I miss, I miss John Stott. I wouldn't say that about many authors. I was saddened the day I heard that John Stott passed away. I've read everything that John Stott has ever written multiple times. Um, I wish he were still with us. I wish he was still writing. And he wrote this book called The Radical Disciple, Some Neglected Aspects of Our Calling. It's a wonderful little book. That's available in our resource room. And Creature of the Word, the Jesus-centered church. And uh, that, too, ties in so nicely with what we're going to be talking about. If the subject registers with you at all, you can check those things out in the resource room at the close of the service. Tonight, this morning, rather, we're looking at doubts caused by a lack of commitment. Doubts caused by a lack of commitment. So, when you can't run away from your most troubling thoughts, one of the things making doubt such a difficult problem to diagnose is that it has many different sources rather than just one. There are many different types of doubts that feel the same in the way they affect the Christian mind, but are completely different in terms of their source and what causes them. Last week, we we studied doubts arising from a faith lacking firm foundations, considering the fact that people can know what they believe in terms of the content of their faith, but have little idea about why they believe what they believe. And remember what we said, if you can't give a why to your faith, you will never be able to give a good why not to your doubts. That's why Peter says, this is the text we looked at, that we were to be ready to give a reason for our faith. People misread that. A reason for our faith, not a recitation of the content of our faith. Why do you hold the Christian beliefs you hold rather than a host of others. These intellectual doubts that we studied last Sunday morning, I started there because those are the kinds of doubts we're probably most familiar with. We usually think of doubts as being rooted in an intellectual or mental setting. They have their seat in the mind. And so the importance of apologetics, and I wouldn't downplay that in a million years, but apologetics won't reach every form of doubt. They won't reach this form of doubt that we're studying this morning. Today we're looking at doubts that are caused not by a lack of logic, but by a lack of commitment. And this kind of doubt is particularly sinister because we're, we're usually unaware of its presence until its hold on our mind and life is felt, emptying our faith, and we'll conclude that there was something intellectual in the process... Perhaps this, doubts caused by a lack of commitment, are perhaps the most unanalyzed type of doubt. 
For all these reasons, I think it's good that we take a Sunday morning and study doubts that come from a lack of commitment. Point number one. To understand this kind of doubt, we need to clearly define the nature of genuine New Testament faith. You have to start there. Here's one of the most important distinctions you can recognize. Empty, um, casual religionists in terms of the Christian faith, those people simply choose Christ, accept Christ, ask Jesus into their hearts. Faithful disciples don't just choose Christ, they choose the consequences of choosing Christ. And there's all the difference in the world between those two things. There's all the difference in the world between those two concepts. Biblical faith is committing yourself not just to choosing Christ, but to choosing the consequences of choosing Christ. In other words, you can't inherit genuine faith from anyone else. Someone else can lead you to Christ. But you can't inherit Christian faith. Faith always involves personal choice. Uh, By nature, it's always costly. It, It selects Christ as Lord only by deselecting all the other options for life allegiance. There's nothing passive about authentic faith. It isn't just being able to process data mentally. Come to church, get the download, process the data mentally. Faith is living by the consequences of our professed beliefs. A good biblical definition of faith might be this. Faith is obedience to the truth. I was looking at this in 1 Peter 1, 22. Having purified your souls by... And you'd think he'd say by the blood of Jesus, wouldn't you? I mean, isn't, isn't that what washes away our sins? Having, having purified your souls by your obedience... To the truth. For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Notice those words by your obedience to the truth. So, what that means is genuine faith has not really been exercised until not only the choice, but the consequences of the choice. Not just choosing Jesus, but choosing the consequences of choosing Jesus. Living that out. That has to be embraced by the mind and the will. So, knowing the truth isn't faith. You can know about the faith. But for that matter, you can know about any faith. You can know about the Buddhist faith. You can know about Islam. You can know about Judaism. You can know about Christianity without practicing any of those religions. Knowing the truth and choosing the consequences of the truth you know. That's New Testament faith. And and here's how all this relates to doubt. That's what we're talking about. Until a person chooses the consequences of his or her own belief 
personally, until he pays the price for faith with daily choices, he has not yet enabled, really, the power of the Holy Spirit to work in his life. You see, the kind of commitment we're describing here is not some deeper grasp or deeper level of faith. This is the entry point to saving faith. This is genuine faith right at the threshold of Christian experience. I think I told you before, I, I, I find certain words losing their currency. Not because there's anything wrong with the expression, but they don't communicate what they used to communicate. I, I really don't get all that bogged down when people tell me they believe in Jesus. I, don't, I try when I'm not in churchy kind of circles. I don't use that expression. Believe in Jesus means so little. I'm more interested when I talk to someone, I'll say, you believe in Jesus, that's great. Do you believe what Jesus believed? Do you believe what Jesus said? And then you'll cite all sorts of things Jesus said, and they'll say, no. And I say, well, what what is your belief in Jesus? Point number two. When this commitment to the consequences of our faith is lacking, doubts from a lack of commitment will eventually hollow out the believer's experience. I think it's important to remember that initially this kind of doubt never manifests itself intellectually. That is, the person doesn't, the person doesn't sit down and start questioning the truthfulness of the belief he holds. That's not the problem. This person agrees with the doctrines. In fact, these kinds of doubts, doubts stemming from a lack of commitment, and I'm going to look at that, doubts stemming from a lack of commitment aren't the kind of doubts that scream for attention the way intellectual doubts sometimes do. this, This is a more slippery kind of doubt with no sharp corners to get a hold of. And, And frequently... The individual doesn't even know why he or she feels the emptiness that's being felt in the heart. Let me talk about that. A, usually there's only one initial symptom kept locked up deep in the heart. And and the only word for it might be uh, a gnawing sense of of phoniness. Unreality. Like, like this whole thing ought to work better than it works, even though you believe it's true. The beliefs are all still held. They haven't been denied yet, but they, they feel irrelevant. They feel empty. You feel like a person walking around in a shopping mall with a wallet full of a foreign currency. Os Guinness says, weak convictions, I guess you have to be mechanically minded to get this, I'm sorry ladies. Oh, maybe some of you are. That's a sexist thing, isn't it? Go out and change the oil in my car. Os Guinness says, weak convictions are like a slipping clutch. The car has gas, the driver is experienced, the motor is good, the engine starts but the whole thing doesn't engage. 
it makes no difference. That's the exact problem with this kind of doubt. The person believes the truth, the person knows the doctrines, the person may even attend the church, professes faith, but his life isn't engaged in it day by day. The whole endeavor seems powerless and somewhat irrelevant to real life. B, if the first symptom is unreality, the second will soon be guilt. After a while, there begins to grow a a kind of uh, painful, inward sense of, of phoniness, failure. It's because you look around, you see other people, and and. Christ seems to mean more to them. You believe in the same Christ. You have the same Bible. You go to the same church. But they seem to have a momentum somehow in their Christian walk. They're they're finding something in it that you're not finding in it. We want ours to work more for us. And every time it doesn't, we sink a little lower into guilt. It should. This is, this is the real dilemma of these types of doubts. Doubts coming from a lack of commitment. The person believes his religious ideas are right. He believes they're good. He just doesn't regularly put them to work. And so guilt grows during this silent incubation period. And see, the final stage of this kind of doubt is unbelief. But it doesn't start there. Atheists are made, not born. Please don't miss the connection between the kind of doubt we're dealing with and the final condition of unbelief in the doubter. In a way, this is the most dishonest form of doubt. There was never anything wrong with the truth. There was never anything incorrect about the doctrine. There was never anything missing in the power of Christ. The message was true. Jesus was alive and real. God was loving and gracious all along. So what went wrong? And and here's the key to doubt caused by a lack of commitment. Uncommitted belief leads to committed unbelief. Uncommitted belief leads to committed unbelief. Because because the person refused to commit to the consequences of his choice to follow Christ, he must save face somehow at the last minute. And so he'll say, well, it just... I don't think it's true. I don't think it's real. I don't think it's genuine. So rather than pointing the finger of blame back in their own direction, at their own responsibility, they'll turn their back upon... The faith and unbelief. But the problem isn't that there isn't enough truth to merit belief. The problem is they never committed their will to the truth they know. They were never engaged in the truth they knew. So I hope you're kind of following the flow of this. First, faith is a commitment to the consequences of our choice to believe in Christ. So in that sense, faith is always in process, ongoing. You you ride a a bike, and the only way it stays balanced, my brother Peter taught me to ride uh, a bike. 
And when you're afraid riding a bike, you try and stand still. But the only way a bike stands up is when it's moving forward. That's what keeps it going. So this faith has to be in process, growing, moving ahead. Grow in faith and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Faith is always a commitment, obedience, living out the consequences of the truth we know. There is no other kind of faith in the New Testament. And until this commitment to obedience is radically made, New Testament faith has actually never been exercised. A person may think they have faith in Jesus, but they're, until they're committed to the consequences of that choice, they haven't exercised faith at all. So doubt will rule. What is the alternative to faith? Where there's only one, unbelief. If you're going to be intellectually honest, if you don't want to admit the real cause, unbelief is the only possible end for the person who empties his life of genuine faith. But the problem was never the worthiness of faith. Three. Faith is best sharpened, if that's the problem, faith is best sharpened when we face the challenge to make our convictions more deeply our own. Here's a life principle. You can take it to the bank. Nothing authenticates the power of faith like paying the price of owning it. Nothing authenticates the power of faith like paying the price of owning it. Soak your mind in the scriptures and you'll see example after example of this kind of commitment to the consequences of a chosen faith. Let me just give you some fast examples. Joshua 24.15 And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, if you don't like that, choose something else. Choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so Joshua calls... You see what he's doing? Joshua is calling the people exactly like we talked about this morning. He's calling the people to line up their actions with their beliefs. If you don't want to follow the Lord then follow these other gods. But for goodness sake, don't just blither stuff about God. He's saying, choose. Make a stand. Pick a direction. Move in that direction. Grow in that direction. He's calling the people to commit themselves to the consequences of their faith. But notice this. After he challenges them, before, before he hears a word of their response, so Joshua, the majority. Joshua, the crowd. Before they even make their response, Joshua commits himself. He doesn't know if anybody's coming with him at that point. And it doesn't matter. His mind is made up. Whatever they choose, he and his house have already made their decision. 
Here's another example. You'll know this story. I used to sing about this in Sunday school. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, said to the king, so they're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. I'm assuming you have that background to the story. They're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace because they don't want to bow and worship the idol. So, it's one thing to say you believe in God and you're following God. It's another thing where there are certain consequences, like your body, your physical body, will be thrown into a burning fire. Consequences of your faith. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. If not, that must have hurt a little bit. Be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So again, this is a revelation of of living out not just the choice, but the consequences of the choice. Three against thousands. Three against an empire. Three against the fiery furnace and the prospect of extinction. A very painful extinction. Faith relishes playing against those odds. They not only know what they believe, they are prepared to live by the consequences of that choice. I pray God raises up, you know, soon us old people are going to just be dead and gone and off the scene. And I pray God raises up a whole bunch of people who are about 18 to 25 right now. And you'll just stand up in some university class, some setting in college, and just say, I really don't care where you're going. I know where I am going. I don't care how the world lives, and I don't care how their standards change. I know how mine are fixed in Christ. One more. Second Timothy one twelve. These words are kind of strange, which is why I suffer as I do. I'm not ashamed, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Those opening words which is why I suffer as I do. Why, Paul? Why do you suffer as you do? Well, you actually have to go back into the context. You have to back it up a bit. And when you do, what you discover is you've got one sentence that's about nine verses long. But if you kind of bump into the middle of it, here are the verses leading up to verse 12. 10 and 11 say, And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, this marvelous plan of redemption, who abolished death, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed as a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. This is Paul, writing from prison. He faces execution in all likelihood. He doesn't know when, how many more days, but he's not about to back down from his calling, his commitment to Christ. He's not about to change his mind. He's not about to soften his mission. Whatever the future holds, 
He lives by the consequences of his choice to follow Christ. That's what faith is. He did it publicly. He did it when he was speaking in front of pagans and philosophers and kings. He does it privacy, privately when he's in his prison cell. It just makes no difference. We need those three examples, those passages, to reteach our casual minds what real conviction of faith is. No conviction is truly your own until you're prepared to stand against the whole world to maintain it. Until you will stand up to anyone who tries to weaken or modify your Christian faith, your faith is not your own. You're just trying it on. And here's the point to this study about doubt. Until your faith is more than a convenient way of having your sins forgiven, you will never find reality and power in it. You, you will soon, sooner or later, find yourself professing a faith verbally, which at other times you kind of feel like you're a spectator looking at from the outside. You're, you're on the stage, you're, you're in the crowd looking at the stage. The flaw isn't in the faith. The flaw is in your commitment. Personal convictions are challenged primarily in three ways. Let me go through this quickly. A, personal convictions are tested by the relentless pursuit of relativism. It would not be an exaggeration to say that a relativistic mind frame is is the birthmark of the spirit of the age. More than anything else, relativism under the falsely defined guise of tolerance, that's the heart of the spirit of Antichrist that the Apostle John wrote about. Relativism is not the same as open-mindedness. Open-mindedness says, I will look at all the options before I make up my mind. Nothing wrong with that. Relativism says, all the options are equally valid. Those are two different things. Nothing nothing cuts the legs out from under the Christian faith like relativism. You, You don't have to deny faith to destroy it. You simply have to put it on an equal footing with all the competing worldviews. I love this. I love this quote from G.K. Chesterton as he once wrote of H.G. Wells. He thought that the object of opening the mind is simply opening the mind, whereas I am incurably convinced that the object of opening the mind, as of opening the mouth for food, is to shut it again on something solid and real. That's a great quote. Christian student, go to every class knowing you will be taught by a relativist. Understand that the only sin left is intolerance. No one will mind Christianity as your opinion. But they will hate it if you say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So relativism. Here's another test of personal convictions. B. They're tested by the power of groupthink. 
Nothing tests the reality of personal convictions like your response to the pressure of the group not to live by them. Anybody can hold personal convictions when they're all alone, reading their Bible, sitting in Christian ed, sitting in the worship service. But you can't live life all alone. People, even your church-going peers, they tend to shove your convictions around a little bit. They push to modify. And, and, and here's the point. You measure your real convictions by what it takes to bump them. Here's what happens in a group. The desire to be socially loved, admired. It crashes head on with the desire to please Jesus Christ as Lord personally. And Jesus addressed this. He talked about this in John 5, 44. You see that? How can you believe? How is this possible? When you receive glory from, and here it is, this is the one another part. And do not seek, there's the verb, the glory that comes from the only God. If, if receiving glory, don't let that religious word trip you up. If receiving acceptance, admiration, approval, a social life. If receiving this from your peers, your friends, is more important to you than receiving glory, admiration, approval from your Lord, you will never be able to live by your convictions. And remember, that's what faith is. It's not believing your convictions. It's living by the consequences of your convictions. Third enemy of faith is... C, personal convictions are tested by society's hardening attitude toward dominant Christian principles. It's a bit like the first point. I get it. This world is getting... This world is getting less and less tolerant. Or to put it differently, this world is getting more intolerant of people who truly live by dominating Christian convictions. Because we're forced by biblical revelation to believe in in absolute sin, and we live in a world committed to sinning, we are naturally going to be viewed as intolerant. Who could possibly be surprised by this? And this world won't tolerate people whom it feels are intolerant. You got me way too loud, probably. You can pull this down. This situation isn't going to get better. It's going to get worse. It's going to get much worse. I'm afraid for people who, who can't stand to come out of the crowd and stake their own personal claim on the basis of biblical revelation. Holding the Christian faith has come pretty cheaply for years now. In fact, during the 80s, it was quite popular. It will soon cost tears and blood to declare faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus said it would get like that. 
four, point number four. As we choose now, so we will be then. There's a sense in which you don't get ready for the future just by thinking about the future. You get ready for the future by the choices you make now. As you live now, so you will be then when Jesus comes again. Remember again, faith is not defined by what you believe. Faith is defined by the consequences of what you believe. Every once in a while I read those verses, you know, from Revelation 22. Starting at verse 7. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. And then, and then these words. And I know you can apply them in all sorts of different ways. Just, just hear the sentences. Let the evil doer still do evil. And the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right. And the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. So individual destiny isn't settled by the events of the end times. People are merely locked into what they already were by the running out of the clock. Their previous choices created their destiny. And here's my closing point. Remember that the stakes of faith are are getting higher. Take every opportunity to deepen the reality of your convictions by putting more on the line than ever before. Conference. One of the things they shared in one of the sessions I attended was the 80-60 rule. This might surprise you. In our churches, PAOC churches, and in evangelical churches. In Canada. 80%. of the people who attend any church, ours included, 80% of the people who attend any church go to church 60% of the time. And that's just talking about Sunday morning, because churches like ours, we don't even fit on the scale anymore. There's no... There's like 11 churches in in our denomination that have a Sunday night service. And nobody does Christian education like separate from the service. You You do a service or two services and you have kids programs during the services. That's the new model. So, so all I'm talking about is one Sunday morning service. Like, like Jesus gets an hour and 20 minutes a week in church. 80% of the people who identify with any church will only attend 60% of those morning services. So my point is, we're, we're getting less and less in certain ways. Most churches don't do a Wednesday thing the way we do.
Many years ago, C.S. Lewis penned these words of strong warning to the church. He said this. Remember, your bid will not be serious if nothing much is staked on it. And you will never discover how serious it is until the stakes are raised horribly high. Until you find that you are playing not for counters or sixpences, but for every penny you have in the world. Nothing less will shake a man, or at least a man like me, out of his merely verbal thinking and his merely notional beliefs. He has to be knocked silly before he comes to his senses. Only pressure brings out real truth. I think that's what's going to happen in your life and mine. I think in God's sovereignty, he is going to make sure that it happens. That's the temptation of the secret moment. The temptation of the pressure of the crowd. That's what it's all about. God wants to see you put me, put my money where my mouth is. He wants to make all of us into outstanding Christians. And nothing will erase doubts from a lack of commitment Like learning to bet on your convictions. Like leaning into them. Live up to the consequences of your beliefs. And what you'll find is assurance and joy and power all multiply exponentially. Don't have just enough religion to make you miserable. 